Welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness with your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Dr. Rob interviews expert coaches, executives, and athletes about mental toughness and their hinge moments. The hinge. It connects who we are with who we've become, and it only takes one. And now for your host, Dr. Rob. So suddenly the, the Ozawa comes in, steps in, the drill sergeant, and he goes, dude, get your shit together right now before they start mentioning it. Solve the problem. I become a problem solver. That's where the dictator, the fear comes in and saves me, and then I can go back to joy. Uh, or what I also call flow, where you flow. You flow when you're feeling good. You step out of it, but that dictator, that risk manager thing is there ready This podcast, 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness, is brought to you by our sponsor, SOS Rehydrate. It's an organic drink mix as effective as an IV drip. It's proven by science and used by elite athletes because only the best will do for elite athletic performance. So for all your hydration needs, our listeners today get 15% off if you enter the code mental toughness at i need sos.com this episode is brought to you by some sleep go to getsome.com that's g e t s o m.com we all deserve a better night's sleep you drink one can 30 minutes before bed and it's that simple this awesome blend lets you not only fall asleep fast but then wake up feeling absolutely refreshed, not hungover or foggy. You're going to absolutely love this product. And in fact, if you go to getsome.com and enter in the promo code Dr. Rob Bell, D-R-R-O-B-B-E-L-L, you get 10% off. Guarantee you're going to love this product. Go there right away. Our guest today on 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness The Rolling Stones magazine called him one of the 100 greatest drummers of all time. I mean, he's worked with the Rolling Stones. He's worked with Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, Elton John, Lady Gaga, Bob Dylan, Johnny Cash, Alice Cooper, Cinderella, Leonard Skinner, Waylon Jennings, Stevie Nicks, Mary Chapin Carpenter, Iggy Pop, Smashing Pumpkins, Sammy Hagar, John Fogarty. I mean, these are just my favorite ones I wanted to mention. Uh, I mean, our guest today... I mean, the accolades are, are pretty remarkable. I mean, he's uh, 60 Grammy-nominated uh, nominated recordings, 1,300 gold, platinum, diamond certified records. Uh, I mean, he's performed on 300 million records sold worldwide. He was the drummer for John Mellencamp from 1980 to 1996. Our guest today, it's... Uh, first musician of this caliber we've had on this show so excited for it kenny arnoff kenny thank you so much for joining us man let's get to it so talk about that i mean with mental toughness because you you talked about before about there being a scale right like do you stand there and take you know keep taking on the chin and getting better or do you kind of lash out and just say you know screw this i mean talk about that mental toughness that scale that you've had to have for your career Okay, the, the, the whole mental toughness that came for me is that when you're a child, you're a child, you have uh, these things I call risk manager skills, which is when, when you're overwhelmed, you, you, you have fear, you, you want to be accepted, you want to be liked by your peers, and everybody figures out a way to survive, to get to be popular, to be successful. I wasn't the biggest guy in, in school, so I, I was a three letterman jock by the time I was a sophomore in high school because I was a tough mofo Mm -hmm. because I wanted to be, I wanted to be on the team. I wanted to play sports. I wanted to be the best. So I, I work harder. You know, they say do 10 pushups. I do a hundred. Uh, they say run 10 miles. I'd run 20. I'm just using examples. You just, you know, I'd be the first guy there, the last guy to leave. And, and I parlayed that into my practice skills as a musician. And so what I would do was I just work harder and tougher. Where did that come from? I'd say a lot of that's DNA. And also, you know, my dad was a hard worker, mm-hmm. ex 
World War II navigator and the bombardiers that blew up Hitler in the last 15 missions. And then he went back to school and got a, a degree and became a, a businessman. And my mom, a school teacher. So from I was the, surrounded. From the Bronx, right? From the Bronx. My yep. mom from the Bronx. Dad was Patterson, New Jersey, but he eventually went to New York. And then we moved up to the Berkshires. I had good business models. And it was where America was at at that point. Laziness was unacceptable. You know, lazy? Nobody's lazy. Everybody works. So I had that in my environment and it was in my DNA. But I think the thing that, you know, my parents looked at me like, God, you guys slow down a little bit. My twin brothers the same way, overachievers. That, I think, comes from the things you want to be accepted. You want to be liked. You want to, you're a pleaser. And those things have served me well. The next level is where you start doing things with those skills to please yourself from a place of love and joy where you're not just do it where you're doing it from a place of love and joy. And I'll give you an example. I got into an orchestra once, the best student orchestra in the country, run by the Boston Symphony Orchestra at Tanglewood, where they have their summer uh, musical festival. And, the, and it took me four consecutive years to eventually get in. I never gave up. And that's an example of n n never accepting no. I, f I failed the first audition. I came back the next year. I learned from the first audition failed. I didn't get accepted the second year. It's not really failure. It's just I didn't get accepted because the failure is exactly a lesson in getting better. So I come back the third year and I'm feeling really comfortable because I understand what's, what the audition is. I didn't get accepted. I could have easily gone, you know, you go like, God, I just would not accept the fighter fight in me. It was like, no, I got one more chance to do this. I'm going in again. I get accepted. So I'm one of seven guys accepted to this fellowship program run by run by the Boston University. First day, the first evening of rehearsal, says you as our, a ruthless dictator conductor. Mm -hmm. Boston Symphony Orchestra conductor, San Francisco, Japanese, has everything memorized. He comes in, this orchestra is the loudest, most powerful, this orchestra is as good as a professional orchestra. He comes in, and he's got everything memorized, but he's going. He's try, totally demonstrating power. He says, "What's the? What are we doing today?" And we say, "The first uh, chair can, uh, violinist says this, this, this is right. Let's do this. It's all memorized." He starts and he whips everybody an asshole. Every every section in the orchestra. Anyway, he was tough. At the end of the rehearsal, everybody scatters. But I'm picking up a lot of percussion instruments, and all of a sudden I hear somebody talking. And I peek up, and it's Leonard Bernstein, one of America's greatest conductors, composers, yep. West Side Story, and so forth. And here's the defining moment. Says, he goes, I don't understand. This orchestra is supposed to be the best orchestra in the country. They're not performing. They're not performing. And Bernstein goes, they are the best orchestra. Show them some love and compassion, and they will perform for you. Mm -hmm. Now, Vic... Uh, 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 Ozawa, more of a dictator. Bernstein, more of coming from a place of love and joy and compassion. Three weeks later, I'm playing with Bernstein as conductor, playing timpani, big Sibelius Five Symphony Orchestra. Yes, he he is demands just as much as Ozawa, but he comes from a place of passion and love, and he opens your heart up. I will perform equally for both of them. The yes, sir, no, sir, commander, drill sergeant, uh, Ozawa, I'm doing it. But there's a lot of coming from a, a place of fear and 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 uh, being overwhelmed and survival that I've got to achieve success even when bullets are coming at you. Now, Bernstein is showing love and compassion. I want to please him, too. The difference is he's going to get more love and joy out of me, which affects everybody around me, which affects the audience, and then they give it back, and there's this huge thing happening. They both give you the results. Now, so here's the key. Inside me lives Ozawa and Bernstein. Mm -hmm. Both of them do. I can be the most ruthless mofo to myself, but also what I'm trying to do is be more of the Bernstein to myself. You achieve to work just as hard. 
but come from a place of love and joy because you perform better. I think you perform where that that expression is coming out. You still are disciplined. You still work just as hard, but you're coming from a positive, loving place, which affects you and everybody else. So I need to, I need to ask you on that that question there. So I mean, you know, you you said you know work came over everything, and I mean to be as driven as you are and as be as successful as you are and work as hard as you do, you know, usually for most people, I mean, that's still coming from that point of fear, right? Like I I gotta be good enough. I'm gonna be good enough, and I'm gonna will yeah. myself to do it. So yeah. how do you navigate then that that being? compassionate with yourself and loving yourself, how do you tap into that power to help drive you? I keep both alive. When I'm in this, let's say I'm in a recording session. First of all, I'm fortunate. Music is a very loving, passionate, taps into spiritual and the universe and kind of drum set and I start playing. Whoa, it feels great. And I'm aware of like, wow, I'm a lucky guy. You know, um, what happens is, let's say I'm recording, and all of a sudden, I'm at the point where I'm going like, the red light will go off, I'm in trouble. This is not working out. Something's not feeling right. And before the, the, the director or the producer or the person in charge is come to me, I'm identifying we got a problem. So suddenly the, the Ozawa comes in, steps in, the drill sergeant and me goes, dude, get your shit together right now before they start mentioning it. Solve the problem. I become a problem solver. That's where the dictator, the fear comes in and saves me. And then I can go back to joy uh, or what I also call flow. Well, right. You flow. You flow when you're feeling good. You step out. of it. But that dictator, that risk manager thing is there ready to save your ass. So let's say up here is where flow is. You're flowing and it's all feeling good. You're kind of aware of what's going on, but you're observing yourself from a distance and you're feeling this, it's feeling great, but you also identify where there's a problem and then jump right into, get right down into earth and get right into solving that problem, keeping enough of the flow going so I'm still flowing, so I don't blow the flow, solve the problem, then go back into flow. So both exist at the same time. It's just like fucking Tom Brady. They've got a plan. They go to the line. They're showing their 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 offense is probably trying to fake out the defense. The defense is trying to fake out what they're presenting. They're going to do. They're saying, "Oh, we know you're going to run. We're going. We look like we're going to run. We're going to throw." They're going, "Well, we know you're probably going to throw, even though we're showing that we know you're going to run." The ball's hiked, and in split seconds, Tom Brady is in flow, but he's got to solve a million problems all at once. He's operating from both the Bernstein and the Ozawa thing. So, and, I mean, let me ask you a question. With, like, what's one thing that the red light starts to go off? I mean, let me into that war a little bit. What could be going off for you in terms of it's just not clicking and working well? Uh, identify that I'm not performing at my ability. I identify – it might be a technical thing like I was doing a, a, a movie soundtrack that uh, James Cameron's involved with. Mm -hmm. They didn't tell me what the movie is. It sounded like it was Avatar 2. But I'm doing this thing where you're going from uh, a, a normal feel like uh, being 4-4, but more of a Latin triplet feel and the and within those two fields there was intricacies that i had to go in and out of and i felt i wasn't catching it mm -hmm. nobody said anything but i went oh i'm going i'm, I'm not getting it i'm not getting it. you got to get this fast or they're going to say something and sure enough the producer who was from uh columbia south south america understood the transition very well and he comes out and he says uh and i'm like i know and he says well, why don't we take a break we're gonna have lunch they went and had lunch i stayed there for 30 minutes and worked it out he says no no you'll get it i went i know if i stay here i'll get it so i went over that transition over and over and over again walked away came back did it over and over again walked away came back over and over again because there's no way i was going to eat lunch and enjoy that when I knew that I didn't have it, I wasn't 
I identified there was a problem and that fear was there. And I was like, I almost remember getting flush. Like, oh my God, you're Kenny effing Aronoff and you're not cutting this right now? You got to solve this problem right now. You know, you know? In, so in that example, like when you like, no, 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 you go to lunch, I'm going to work this out. Which, which Kenny, which one were you operating from? Which, which fight or fight? Oh, fight or fight. There was Ozawa. That was Ozawa. Ozawa there. Was right yeah. there. He's like, you get this, so you know, or the, the, the time where, you know, I, I just gotten in the Mellencamp band and, and after two days of recording, we have a meeting and the, and John tells me, you're not playing on the record. This is the first time I just got in the band five weeks. And he goes, oh, you're not playing on the record. And as he tells me, you're going home. I says, I ain't going anywhere. So, uh, so lay, lay out this story for us. Time to go to college. I went to, I got into the University of Massachusetts, which is a school of classical music, more of education. I wasn't good enough to get into the top three, which is Indiana University, Juilliard, and Eastman. So I get there and I practice my ass off until they throw me out every night to try to catch up. I go to the Aspen School of Music. I audition chasing after this pretty cellist, well, as pretty as they can be in orchestra music. But yep. anyway, I go to the Aspen School of Music, which is the number two school of music. And there, I was the worst percussionist there. I got my ass killed there humiliated, embarrassed. I was way behind. But that teacher who taught there was from Indiana University School of Music. I demanded an audition. He said, nah, come back. I kept saying, I'm coming, going where you're going. I'm going with you. I demanded an audition. I get in. I spend four years at Indiana University. I rise to the top. I get into the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra. Everybody's ecstatic. My parents are happy. And I turn it down because my brain said, you should do this. The Ozawa thing was saying, you should do this. My heart was going, I still want to rock. So I was studying drum set in Boston and New York, practicing eight hours a day. And that's when I went, oh, my God, everyone's going to, parents are going to kill me, but this is what I want to do. I spent the next four years trying to make it in a rock band and move back to Indiana. Didn't happen. I'm 27. I hear about this guy in Indiana, Johnny Cougar, who just fired his drummer. I auditioned, get the gig. Five weeks later, we're in the studio in L.A. making a record. Even though I had achieved all this stuff, the reason why I got asked not to do the record was the producer needed to get the record done in eight weeks, which is fast, especially without the technology of today. And he said, Kenny hasn't enough experience getting records to be on the radio. And the purpose of a drummer a session drummer or any session musician is one thing. Most people will answer, oh, keep time, play the right part. Just get the song on the radio to be number one. It's not about you. It's about the song. Mm-hmm. It's about the ultimate. It's the Super Bowl ring. It's the, you do your part to serve the team to win the game. That's like Michael Jordan was ruthless because he was a team player. Guy shot great. Guy dribbled great. Guy passed great. The scariest thing about being in front of him is he was going to do the right thing for the team to win the game, to win the playoffs, to win the, the trophy. So I didn't know that. When you're practicing eight hours a day for like eight years, it's all about you. Am I doing this right? Am I doing this right? Am I doing this right? Am I doing this? But the next level is it's not about you. It's about the team. And it takes the team. Each Beatle was great, but together they were the friggin' Beatles. Mick Jagger is Mick Jagger, but he ain't the Rolling Stones, and he knows right. that. That's so, why they're so successful. So I didn't. So when John said, John didn't want to fire me, but the guy said, so I was ruthless. I went, well, I'm not going home. So I went in the studio and watched those other drummers and took notes for four weeks. And I told John, you don't have to pay me. And what, what other drummers? That were doing the sessions? Yeah, they were the, the producer, the producers that they hire me. I'm on 300 million records sold. Yep. And I, every style of music you can imagine, which is rare. Usually you're like the rock drummer. You're, I've done everything from Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Chris Christoph, and Waylon Jennings to Smashing Pumpkins, Tony Iommi from Sabbath to, you know, uh, uh, Bob B- Dylan Buddy and Guy. Cinderella, man. Yeah, everybody, everybody. So the thing is, is that, um, 
the producer has his guys because a producer will hire me because they know uh, not only can I play and I can take all care of all the skills that are necessary to get a song on the radio, but uh, there are three other things I have. I have a, I know how to connect with people. I know how to communicate with people. And when you connect and communicate, you can collaborate. I walk into a session, Elton John session, never met the guy before, or Bernie Taupin, his partner, or the the, the producer or whoever. I got to walk in and go, yeah, I'm Kenny Aronoff. Start getting along with them, communicating. In about 45 minutes, we're making a record. If you don't have any connection, then the, there's no feeling. Yeah. You got to connect. People are feeling creatures. That's what makes music so amazing, or even sports. And when you're connecting, it's the Bernstein, it's the feeling thing that makes things. And then the audience feels that you're feeling. They get connected. They can feel it. People may not realize it, but why do I like that? Because I'm feeling it. Why do people still love Led Zeppelin? It feels so good. Yeah. You know? So you're... So you say, I'm, I'm going to work for free. You watch the other drummers and, and pick it up from there. Yeah, and, and what, yeah, I did. I, I noticed the way they tuned, the way they kept time, their feel, the way they play through a whole song from beginning to end, which I still do, even when I'm recording by myself. Because when you play from beginning to end, it's a whole movie, as opposed to nowadays you could play a couple of measures and they can edit it. What the f That's like you're getting 80%. When I see that red light come on, I play from beginning to end knowing if I make a mistake, I'm going to mess up the whole session back in the old days when they only had tape. Yep. You don't want to be that guy. You do not want to be the guy to mess up and blow it for everybody else because they build everything on the drums. It's all changed now. You can overdub drums, but I still come in with that attitude because it feels different. Mm -hmm. It feels live. So I watch the other drummers. They were cool. One drummer text emailed me about five years ago and went, I knew you were going to make it. You had the right attitude. You had the right everything. You listened. You, you were kind. You were compassionate. You weren't no ego. It served me well to do that. And they were willing to give me things. And I, then I went home after four weeks and set up a new business model, an eight-hour day practice routine. But uh, instead of looking through the telescope, I was now looking through a microscope. Mm -hmm. Two different worlds. Two different worlds. The less is more approach. Get the song on the radio be number one. I was thinking, how do I practice that? So I picked music that seemed like the drummers were serving, like the Stones, Creedence Clearwater, ACDC. Uh, you know, uh, uh, where it was the bands were operating as a unit, as a team, and all chugged along together. I figured it, you know, I started figuring it out. And so, I mean, after they say, you know, you're not going to be on the record, how did that end up playing out? Well, when he said you're on the record, I was embarrassed, humiliated, you know, freaked out. I, there's no way I was going home. Right. I would be, I couldn't even walk down the street. I'd rather go to Mars. So um, I made the determination, fight or fight. I'm going to be on the next record. I don't care what I have to go through. I don't care what crap I have to suck up. I'm going to be on the next record. And the next record was two years later. <laughs> I had to wait. I had to tour and go. It was the most difficult record I've ever been on. I mean, it was with Mellencamp, but it won two Grammys, and it totally launched my career. It, it, that's the one with the big hit Jack and Diane was on. Yep. Hurt So Good. So and, what about Hurt So Good, that simple backbeat? Can you talk about that one? Exactly. So I'm thinking I got to learn how to play simpler. So I started to play left-handed. I started practicing completely ambidextrous. Instead of leading with my right hand on the hi-hat and playing backbeat with my snare drum, I went and I did it to dumb my playing down. And it's kind of like almost like a beginner. And so John walks in one day and says, hey, I wrote this song. It's called Hurt So Good. He starts playing it. And I'm very lightly because John's the type of guy he played the song twice and he expect me to come up with the genius beat. I did it for Jack. I did it for Jack and Diane. Made him millions of dollars. Well, surely I can do that again. But huh, I'd be like, oh my god. And I have a whole system of creativity now. We don't have to waste our time on it now. But so what I did, I here's this is amazing. I'm playing left-handed softly with fear 
he's going to go, what stupid beat is that? Instead, he goes, what beat are you playing? I'm like, oh, no. He says, what? that's amazing. Why haven't you played that before? What happened was playing left-handed, I sounded, it felt different. It had a, like a more beginner, looser Charlie Watts from the Stones feel as opposed to more defined perfectionist because I'm right-handed. Mm-hmm. It'd be like trying to throw basketballs with your left hand. It's going to be a little spazzy. But John liked that. It's kind of loosey-goosey. So when I recorded that song, I recorded left-handed. And I was scared to death. And it, it also when you play left-handed, the left hand is on the hi-hat. And I did these fills with my right hand that kept the left hand going. So it was like almost like a a, 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 a shaker. that And then you lose that. It was it dumbed my fills down, and I'll never forget walking into the studio after recording and going, man, I'm playing this stupid, dumb beat. You know, Jeff Beccaro from Toto gets to play, and Rush drummer, you know, Neil Perkins do all this stuff, and Bonham and Stuart Cole from The Police, and I'm going boom, ba, boom, ba, boom, <laughs> boom. And then and I heard the playback. The drums were way up in the mix, and I went, Oh my God, I can feel everything I was thinking and feeling. It's like, oh, I get it now. That's amazing. You're playing simple and you got this cool energy and then everybody's playing on top of that and it's chugging along like back in black from ACDC and I went, bang, I, it hit me. I get it now. And of course, that was the lead off single for the record. I mean, it's just loud and John had the drums up loud in the mixes. So his concept was to dwarf any song that came on the radio before or after us. And it worked. And meanwhile, everyone's going, who's that drummer? And I remember Rod Stewart. I was, I'm not Rod Stewart. Rod Morgenstein, the drummer, played with the Dixie Dregs, a lot of chops. And I opened up my band when, before I got in Mellon Camp, was a fusion band. We opened up for them and then, we were on tour with Mellencamp two years later or three years later, and he comes to the show and he's watching me play, you know, hurts so good and all this stuff. And he, he says, I wanted to stand up and tell everybody, you don't understand. He really can play better than that. He says, how do you do that? I went, Rod, I know what you're saying. I'm not doing this. I'm doing this. But did you see the 20,000 people standing up dancing to that? Mm-hmm. And that gets back to your original point, right? It's about the song. It's about always getting back to that chorus, right? The the team. Yeah, because John isn't this. John is more like the Stones, you know, straight ahead. It's about that beat was perfect for that song. And that's what made when, you know, doosh, ga, do, ga, do, do, ga, guitars, ga, ga, da, do, ga, da, da. It just all worked together. And it was this team chugging along and just moving like that. It was like, it's everybody together made a sound. There you go. It, man. Um, you know, I, I can't mention all the recording credits of people that you've been in, but my favorite of all time is still Bob Dylan. Wow. Do you have... Um, oh, I got great stories. Okay. Can, can you share one, man? Yeah. So let me back up, right? So I'm... I, I'm with Mellencamp for eight years on record. We spent it. It was a two-year cycle. Rehearse for the record, make the record, promote the record, go on tour, two years. Yep. Take a month off and start again. We did that four times, eight years. And John quits. I'm like, what? I'm like, that's when I went. I'm at the mercy of one guy. Mm-hmm. So the fight or fight kicked in. And the next day I woke up. I was devastated. I just got divorced, had child support, car payment, house payment, Utilities, blah, blah, blah. I was doing sessions, but I wasn't a session drummer yet. Like, uh, it wasn't my occupation. I woke up the next day and went, all right, I've worked with one rock star for eight years. Now I'm going to work with all the other ones. I went out to L.A., starting to bang around. A year later, a guy calls me up, Don Was. He wants me to play on the Iggy Pop record. That's a hilarious story. Nice. Uh, that's, a, that's another story. So Don Was calls you up. See, I didn't. <laughs> he wanted me to meet Iggy. He wanted me to meet him first. I go to the studio and he sounded, he didn't sound like a white guy. So <laughs> I go up to the black singer's sweet peas, my friend, and says, 
hey, are you Don Woods? And he went, I ain't no Don Woods. And I went, oh, I'm so sorry. I go over to these white guys and I go, God, when, when's Don going to get here? And they're laughing their ass off. It was Don Woods. <laughs> <laughs> he thought that was hilarious. So Don tells me, he wants, I do this Iggy Pop record and then he wins two, three Grammys for Nick of Time, Bonnie Ray, and then uh, Love Shack. He did Love Shack for the B-52s. And then he calls me up after the record, says, Kenny, you want to do a Bob Dylan record? I went, are you kidding me? Bob effing Dylan? He says, here's the deal. I'm going to mix it up. And you know why? He told me years later, the reason why he mixed it up, because Bob said, John, uh, Don said, well, can I hear some of your songs? He says, no. I'll play them when I get to the session. So Don went, all right, well, you don't, I don't know what your song's on. You don't know what the musicians are. And <laughs> so the first day, I'm sitting, the only time Bob talked to me, the whole time, I'm sitting in a chair like this. All of a sudden, it's two hours late. All of a sudden, a guy taps me on the shoulder. I turn around. It's Bob Dylan. He goes, Kenny, nice to meet you. Bob Dylan. I went, ah! He walks in to the studio. On the session, Stevie Ray Vaughan, the year he died. Mm. His brother, Jimmy Vaughan. David Lindley was playing with, I think, Jackson Brown. Don Woods was playing bass. And another guy, Jamie Mahobic. And I remember Bob sits down at the piano. He starts playing. Something went off in my head. Start playing with him. Start playing with him. All the other musicians were somewhere else. I start playing. It's called Wiggle Wiggle. I don't know if you remember that. It's under the Red Sky album. Okay. He's playing. He's playing. Wiggle Wiggle. And I start playing. All of a sudden, the other musicians come running in. And they start picking up their instruments. Thank God the engineer hit record. I think he stopped it. Then he started again. That was the take. Now, and, sorry, yeah, that keep, was like, keep going. That was kind of like a fight or fight thing. Like the red light went off. You know, this guy, this guy's different. He's not going to count it off. He's not going to say, "Hey guys, nice to meet you. Let's start." My 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 communication skills, my awareness of. Because I mean, I think I get hired as much for my ability to connect, communicate, and collaborate as I do my playing. Because at my level, there's like there's a, a handful of great drummers. I could call that guy. But the Don Was is going to want a guy like me there because he knows that I can help save his session or motivate the room, which I did there. And he even put that in my book. So that's a great day. A month later, I'm recording with Bob. He, he shows up. And he set up, they set up like a vocal booth right in front of me. He's got glasses on, baseball hat, a hoodie, and big gloves on. <laughs> He's right in front of me, but he never said one word to me. And I just felt like that's Bob Dylan. I'm not going to say, hey, Bob, how you doing? You know, just zip it. I, he never said one word to me for the next three sessions. Wow. I, it was just, but every time he sees me, he's, hey, Kenny. Like, we honored him at Music Cares. And I played with 11 different artists, you know, that get hired, once again, by Don Was. And at the end... I walk off stage, and he said, hey, Kenny, great job. You played pretty good. <laughs> he shook my hand. <laughs> it's just, he's special. He's different. So, yeah. when you know, in those kind of instances, I, mean, I always talk about trusting your gut, right? Like, your gut just told you just to get in there and start playing. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, you know, talk about that, because that's, I mean, that's a refined skill, right? To be able to trust your gut and just to go at it. I mean, how else has that played out like in your career, man? Oh my God, all the time. All the time uh, on a daily basis. I know, you know, you can't, the bottom line is you, you want to understand who you are. So you're always authentic because that, the, the really super successful, talented people can smell that a mile away. They can smell authenticity and bullshit. And so I've had I had an intimate conversation with Bill Clinton, and I think the way I talked to him opened him up. And this is the story. And you can decide if you want to <laughs> edit this out, but I'm doing I'm doing um, the Ford Theater, which is where Lincoln got shot. Yep. I did it. I did it one year with Bon Jovi. The next year, and when we're done, 
you get in a semicircle. It's a variety show. You got jugglers, opera singers. We're the rock thing. First year, I'm like, oh my god, I'd never met a president before. So I shake his hand, I shake her hand, and he looks right at you like Bill Clinton, coolest dude in the world. The next year, I'm comfortable now. I go, hey, he goes by us, and he goes to David Copperfield, then he comes back to us. Just imagine the credits are rolling. And uh, he comes back to us and says, hey, Mr. President, i got to tell you, I was just, now this is the point, I was being totally real, authentic. Yep. I wasn't, it wasn't an act. I'm like, listen, I was just in L.A. in New York. This is the peak of the Monica Lewinsky incident. I mean, Ken Starr, whatever his name was, the judge, where the prosecutor, you know, was, had the rubber glove on. And and I said, uh, he, he comes up to me, shakes my hand, grabs my forearm, pulls me in close, and looks me right in the eye. Doesn't whisper in my ear. He goes, you know, they've been wanting me out of the office for six years. It ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. He's laughing. Yeah. My point is, the point of it is the way I talked to him made him feel like, oh, I, I like this guy. It made him feel so comfortable to talk to me. We were both doing it to each other. But everybody was looking at me like, what did he say? Or I can't believe Kenny just did that. But that came from just a, a place of, you know, a, just total, authentic, genuine. And I can do that with people. And um, if you do it from that kind of place, people, humans are feeling creatures. They relax. Mm -hmm. They you take you, you take that 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 you. you you bring them back to feeling just natural and comfortable with with themselves, and you've just made them feel ah oh, relaxed. It's, it's, you know, I mean, some of the toughest guys I've done, and I don't do it purposely. I do it not, almost naively. It's just the way I am wired. Mm -hmm. I mean, Don Don Henley, I've done it. Don Henley, people have told me, oh my God, or Bon Jovi, they're hardcore. They run their business. I just saw Bon Jovi. I, he, he came up to me and slapped me and was running. I was chasing after him, tackling him. He says, you didn't text me. I have to come backstage to find out you're playing before us. This is like some concert with 100,000 people. It was Fogarty, then Bon Jovi. And we're hanging out. And, you know, it's we're like kids, you know. Yeah. Um. You know, I mean, again, I can't mention them all, but I mean, Stevie Nicks, Waylon Jennings. I mean, like you said, man, yeah. you, you you got to be on. I mean, you were drumming with with Ringo and and Paul McCartney. I mean, yeah. Cinderella, Mary yeah. Chapin, Carpenter, my favorites, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, Billy Corgan. What amongst all these individuals that you worked with, what have you found to be the one common denominator when it comes to that mental game or that you know, what what is it that's similar between all those successful people? Oh, they're, well, they're just like like me and, and you. They're, they're uh, high achievers. They, uh, they have to be over-the-top great. They probably did the same thing, the fear as a child. I mean, everybody goes through that as a child. You, the fear overwhelmed, you're small, everyone's big. <laughs> yeah, It's like you're in this world of giants, and you've got people telling you how to live your life – at school and at home or wherever you are. And so they, you know, different people had different, you know, Waylon Jennings grew up picking cotton, living on yeah. a mud floor. You know, I played with Jerry Lee Lewis until he had a stroke. And this guy, I mean, these guys were poor. And they become high achievers. And um, the thing that we have in common is we're both, both high achievers and they can smell that and they like that. These guys, what they have in common is that they they work extremely hard and they're they're relentless at getting great results. And when they see a guy like Fogarty, mm -hmm. who saw me, that guy, as he said in my book, you know, I was the thirtieth drummer after five years of recording Blue Moon Swamp, and he realized that's the guy I want to play with because he saw me trying to be as relentless and self determined. And a perfectionist and never satisfied as he is. Mm -hmm. And he went, I want, I want him on my team. I mean, he do two takes, listen to the song, two takes, listen to the song, two takes, listen to the song, two takes, listen to the song. And I finally went to him. I think we got. It. He says, you know, 
I think I want to do it for a little while more. We did three and a half hours, took a lunch break, did another song. He says, you know, I really enjoy working with you. Would you come by tomorrow? I'm like, awesome. John Fogarty, Creed Stillwater. When I was a little kid, I was listening to those records. Yep. Come back. I said, what two songs are we doing today? And the engineer laughed. He said, same two songs. Same one. I went, <laughs> oh, I, what? I'm thinking, what have I not done that he wants? But Okay, so I'll go on. Next day, same two songs. Thursday, same two songs. I'm not going crazy. But meanwhile, I'm trying. I'm like, what? It's exactly the way he is. He needs to play it over and over again till he's exhausted all possibilities. And it's a process. It's uh, He just has to tie his shoelaces a hundred times or whatever it is. He's, when he sees that I'm into it like he is, because he had drummers go, dude, that's it. Pick. I gave you 16 tags. I'll see you. Bye. And walk out. But not me. Oh, I'm fucking, I'm, I'm going for it, fighting. I'll do it, sure. You want another one? And he says, I like this guy. Yep. And and together, that makes a powerful team. It's a Tom Brady Adelson. It's Tom Brady and Adelson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so what about in terms of like greatness one of the things that i've seen is everyone that's achieved success was told you can't do it that's a dumb idea don't try it and you oh, kind of, yeah. and you kind of mentioned it before not taking that that jerusalem symphony but who told you that you couldn't do it well one example was when i decided after the jerusalem symphony orchestra and i was uh, practicing humbly at my parents' house. Now I'm living at home, practicing eight hours a day and studying in Boston and New York, drum set, just devoting all my energy to drum set and feeling really overwhelmed and fear, like, oh my God, I spent five years on classical music. But there was no school of rock and roll back then. I guess I could have just practiced at home, but my family, you go to college. Yep. It was that generation. You go to college, you learn a skill, you get a job in that skill, a job in the skill you learned and then you make money you raise a family and it you keeps the american dream going and and keeps the system going so that's what i did i decide i get convinced to move to indiana to start a band with a bunch of guys and everybody went that's a mistake the music business is in new york la and nashville what are you doing in indiana and I decided to go there because I had no option. I I didn't know anybody in L.A. or what was I going to go? I didn't see. I mean, go to L.A. and then what? Just get an apartment, start flipping burgers and practicing. You're right. That would work. Meet people, work your way up the top. I think in some ways the it, it, my intuition, and it may have been the easier way, is I had a band and the business model was we rehearse, write songs, we had one of the dads invested 30 grand. We had a truck, light, sound, PA. We go out, play clubs, get a name. Then we send a, our songs to a record label and get signed. So there was a business model in place. Yep. So I went, all right, I'll do it in Indiana. You know, if I, and everybody told me I was nuts. Not one person supported me. And I, obviously it was the right move because three years later when I'm, it didn't work out. That brought me into the same town as where Johnny Cougar lived. Yep. Another example was when I got accepted to the Aspen School of Music after my freshman year at University of Massachusetts. Me and my twin brother go off to college at the same time. My mom is like, oh, my God, the whole house changed. It went from two very hyper athletic music guys, people always coming over to the house. It was the hang to all of a sudden we're gone. The whole world changed. I, my brother comes back that summer. On my way back, I'm leaving school. I forgot my mail. I go get my mail, and I, I got accepted to the Aspen School of Music. Not only accepted, but you got to be there in two weeks, mm -hmm. which meant that I was probably an alternate. Somebody turned it down. Sure. Nobody wanted me to go. Like Aspen, would, well, uh, why don't you spend you? Because you, I had my whole summer planned. You know, lessons. Uh, nobody really wanted me to go. But I went, and that's where I met the teacher that taught at Indiana University that brought me to Indiana, which created everything. Yep. And I felt on my own. I felt, and I was nervous. And when I got there, I got my ass kicked. 
You know, I, I, I got, I was humiliated. I was the worst percussionist there. Everybody was so advanced above, beyond me. It was like, I think my teacher even thought, oh my God, I, I had the wrong guy come. So, I'm me, not <laughs> and I love it, man. You know, I mean, you show up, you're the seven string quarterback and you just gotta keep fighting, man. I love it. Yeah. What? I mean, and that was a Brett Favre reference, but, um, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I'm the, I'm the, <laughs> old Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan wasn't great in high school, I heard. Yeah. He wasn't. Uh, I mean, let me so, so let me ask you something, just to delve a little bit deeper on it. So you have this opportunity. It's a safe opportunity, right? I mean, you've been studying classical. You're going to go to Jerusalem being part of that symphony orchestra. That's the, yeah. that's the safe route. And, I mean, that, that would be a great route, right? Yeah, but, that was – I took possibility over certainty. So what was it? about that possibility that you knew that you could make it work. I did know I could make it work. That was the, that's what made it even more crazy. All I knew was my brain was saying you should go, but part of it was I really didn't want to go to Israel. It wasn't exactly a popular safe place to be. Mm -hmm. The other thing was when I started playing drums, even though I was playing in clubs, it grabbed my heart so much. That was always wanted to be in a rock band after I saw the Beatles. There was nothing as, I mean, playing classical music is cool, but it's not like rock and roll. Yeah. It just doesn't move me as much. You know, when you're playing rock and roll, as my brother said, it was so much my purpose in life. I was so authentic doing it that he stepped back and went, oh my God, I, I, I don't feel like that guy. I'm not going to do that for a living. Jesus Christ. If that Kenny is doing it with that kind of compassion, how am I going to compete with that? I didn't know he was thinking that. So what happened was I played with, it was so me. I played with so much drive and enthusiasm. People would look at me and go in the band and go, whoa, I'm going to have to keep up with him. I didn't know any of this till later in life. So now I'm motivating the band just because it's, because this is who I am. But then the band is motivating the audience. They're going, nothing can motivate an audience like a drummer and a singer. And we're driving it, and then they're, I'm looking, and I'm loving it, you know, and they're giving it back, and so we're giving it back to them. They're giving it back. Basically, my purpose is to make me feel good, which makes other people feel good, which makes me feel even better. Mm -hmm. that, so I never felt that quite at that level as I did in classical music. So it was just following that passion and that love and what you wanted to do. That was the thing that, that kept me in the game. Yep. That's what kept me in the game. Living at home, I'd be like, what am I doing? I blew it. I should have gone to Jerusalem. I'd be in an orchestra getting paid. I'm playing in these clubs. But when I get in the club, it ignited that passion. That was enough to drive me to Indiana. And everything on paper looked wrong. What are you doing? To make it in a rock and roll band is like one out of a million. And I did. I made it. And I had fought my way there. Then to make it as a session drummer is one out of a million. And to do both is one out of a billion. And to then multiple styles of music. I'm hanging with Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, Waylon Jennings on the Highwaymen record. I, I couldn't believe it. And then I'm playing with Stevie Wonder. Then I'm playing... Like, I'm eating presents. I'm like, what the heck? Every style of music, and it's, so it's been, and the underlying for, drive there, the underlying key is you never stop working. You know, I have a line. It's like I'll never be as great as I want to be, but I'm willing to spend the rest of my life trying to be as great as I can be. And that is a running back in football, the greatest running backs, you name it, does he get the ball every time and get a touchdown hell no he's always trying to get in the end zone he's focused on the end zone i'm focused on being the best that i can be every day couple that with the passion and love and joy with what i do if i stop moving that's when i get down yep. because i keep setting up goals and when i reach them i get stimulated i created a system for better or worse that makes me enjoy my life and if I'm happy, people around me are happy. What I mean, if you're going to live, why don't you just well be happy 
as long as you're not being harmful, and spread love and joy, which then makes me feel good. And it's just a great person to have in your environment. You know, it's, I mean, that's the big picture. But some of the DNA that I got for in my, or being raised by my parents that I'm a good communicator helps also, you know, you know. It's, Kenny, man, I got so much out of this, uh, this interview, man. I mean, I, you're in between tours and sessions, man. I really appreciate you taking yeah. the time and the stories were yeah, fantastic, man. man. Um, where can people uh, follow you and just, um, um, you know, learn more about you? Well, um, my website is, you know, www.kennyaronoff.com. Instagram, Kenny Aronoff. Uh, Twitter is Aronoff Official. Nice. Facebook. Facebook is Kenny Aronoff. But if you're going to try, I get I'll, requests. I'll post, I'll post all those links too, man. But my... If if I don't, I can't add any more people. I tapped out eight years ago. So people say, add me as a friend. I'm like, I, I, I'm going to have to get rid of another friend to add you. So <laughs> fan page. Now, I don't list where I'm going to be because when I'm – then everybody knows I'm not at home and my wife's by herself. Oh, right. So right. I don't post. So I post as I'm – when I'm there. Uh, but um, – uh, and then uh, I have a speaking – page which you can if you want to see me speak a little bit it's uh www.cal c-a-l entertainment.com and i'm in the exclusive speaker page and uh yeah i mean in linkedin i'm in linkedin also yeah, i'll put the links yeah. on there man and uh thanks so much brother man that, was, that yeah. was great man thank you cool thanks i'm honored you asked me Thank you for listening to the Mental Toughness Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also check us out on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell or visit our website at drrobbell.com.